Chapter eighty three of Varney the Vampire, Volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Moline. Varney the Vampire, Volume two, by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter eighty three. THE MYSTERIOUS ARRIVAL AT THE INN THE HUNGARIAN NOBLEMAN THE LETTER TO VARNEY While these affairs are proceeding, and when there seems every appearance of Sir Francis Varney himself quickly putting an end to some of the vexatious circumstances connected with himself and the Bannerworth family, it is necessary that we should notice an occurrence which took place at the same inn which the admiral had made such a scene of confusion upon the occasion of his first arrival in the town. Not since the admiral had arrived with Jack Pringle, and so disturbed the whole economy of the household, was there so much curiosity excited as on the morning following the interview which Charles Holland had had with Varney the vampire. The inn was scarcely opened when a stranger arrived, mounted on a coal-black horse, and, alighting, he surrendered the bridle into the hands of a boy who happened to be at the inn-door, and stalked slowly and solemnly into the building. He was tall and of a cadaverous aspect. In attire he was plainly apparelled, but there was no appearance of poverty about him. On the contrary, what he really had on was of a rich and costly character, although destitute of ornament. He sat down in the first room that presented itself, and awaited the appearance of the landlord, who, upon being informed that a guest of apparently ample means, and of some consequence, had entered the place, hastily went to him to receive his commands. With a profusion of bows, our old friend, who had been so obsequious to Admiral Bell, entered the room, and begged to know what orders the gentleman had for him. "'I presume,' said the stranger in a deep, solemn voice, "'I presume that you have no objection, for a few days, that I shall remain in this town, to board and lodge me for a certain price which you can name to me at once?' "'Certainly, sir,' said the landlord, "'any way you please. Without wine, sir, I presume?' "'As you please. Make your own arrangements.' "'Well, sir, as we can't tell, of course, what wine a gentleman may drink, but when we come to consider breakfast, dinner, tea, and supper, and a bed, and all that sort of thing, and a private sitting-room, I suppose, sir?' "'Certainly.' "'You would not, then, think, sir, a matter of four guineas a week would be too much, perhaps?' "'I told you to name your own charge. Let it be four guineas. If you had said eight, I should have paid it.' "'Good God!' said the publican. "'Here's a damned fool that I am. I beg your pardon, sir. I didn't mean you. Now I could punch my own head. Will you have some breakfast at once, sir, and then we shall begin regularly, you know, sir?' "'Have what?' "'Breakfast.' Breakfast, you know, sir. Tea, coffee, cocoa or chocolate, ham, eggs, or a bit of grilled fowl, cold sirloin or roast beef, 
or a red herring, anything you like, sir. I never take breakfast, so you may spare yourself the trouble of providing anything for me. Not take breakfast, sir? Not take breakfast? Would you like to take anything to drink then, sir? People say it's an odd time, at eight o'clock in the morning, to drink, but for my part I always have thought that you couldn't begin a good thing too soon. I live upon drink, said the stranger, but you have none in the cellar that will suit me. Indeed, sir. No, no, I am certain. Why, we've got some claret now, sir, said the landlord. Which may look like blood, and yet not be it. Like what, sir? Damn my rags. Be gone, be gone. The stranger uttered these words so peremptorily that the landlord hastily left the room, and going into his own bar, he gave himself so small a tap on the side of the head that it would not have hurt a fly, as he said, I could punish myself into bits. I could tear my hair out by the roots. And then he pulled a little bit of his hair, so gently and tenderly, that it showed what a man of discretion he was, even in the worst of all his agony of passion. The idea, he added, of a fellow coming here, paying four guineas a week for board and lodging, telling me he would not have minded eight, and then not wanting any breakfast. It's enough to aggravate half a dozen saints. But what an odd fish he looks. At this moment the ostler came in, and standing at the bar, he wiped his mouth with his sleeve, as he said, I suppose you'll stand a quart for that, master? A quart for what, you vagabond? A quart because I've done myself up in heaps? A quart because I'm fit to pull myself into fiddle-strings? No, said the ostler, because I've just put up the gentleman's horse. What gentleman's horse? Why, the big-looking fellow with the white face, now in the parlor. What, did he come on a horse, Sam? What sort of a looking creature is it? You may judge of a man from the sort of horse company he keeps. Well, then, sir, I hardly know. It's coal-black, and looks as knowing as possible. It's tried twice to get a kick at me, but I was down upon him and put the bucket in his way. Howsomdever, I don't think it's a bad animal, as a animal, mind you, sir, though a little bit wicious or so. Well, said the publican, as he drew the ostler half a pint instead of a quart, you're always drinking. Take that. Blow me, said the ostler. Half a pint, master. Plague take you. I can't stand parleying with you. There's the parlor bell. Perhaps after all he will have some breakfast. While the landlord was away, the ostler helped himself to a quart of the strongest ale, which, by a singular faculty that he had acquired, he poured down his throat without any effort at swallowing, holding his head back and the jug at a little distance from his mouth. Having accomplished this feat, he reversed the jug, giving it a knowing tap with his knuckles, as though he would have signified to all the world that it was empty, and that he had accomplished what he desired. In the meantime, the landlord had made his way to his strange guest, who said to him, when he came into the room, 
Is there not one Sir Francis Varney residing in this town? The devil, thought the landlord. This is another of them. I'll bet a guinea. Sir Francis Varney, sir, did you say? Why, sir, there was a Sir Francis Varney, but folks seem to think as how he's no better than he should be. A sort of vampire, sir, if you know what that is. I have certainly heard of such things, but can you not tell me Varney's address? I wish to see him. Well, then, sir, I cannot tell it to you, for there's really been such a commotion and such a riot about him that he's taken himself off, I think, altogether, and we can hear nothing of him. Lord bless you, sir, they burnt down his house and hunted him about so that I don't think that he'll ever show his face here again. And cannot you tell me where he was seen last? That I cannot, sir, but if anybody knows anything about him, it's Mr. Henry Bannerworth, or perhaps Dr. Chillingworth, for they have had more to do with him than anybody else. Indeed. And can you tell me the address of the former individual? That I cannot, sir, for the Bannerworths have left the hall. As for the doctor, sir, you'll see his house on High Street, with a large brass plate on the door, so that you cannot mistake it. It's number nine, on the other side of the way. I thank you for so much information, said the stranger, and, rising, he walked to the door. Before, however, he left, he turned and added, You can say, if you should by chance meet Mr. Bannerworth, that a Hungarian nobleman wishes to speak to him concerning Sir Francis Varney, the vampire? A what, sir? A nobleman from Hungary, was the reply. The deuce, said the landlord, as he looked after him. He don't seem at all hungry here, not thirsty neither. What does he mean by a nobleman from Hungary? The idea of a man talking about Hungary and not taking any breakfast. He's queering me. I'll be hanged if I'll stand it. Here I clearly lose four guineas a week and then get made a game of besides. A nobleman, indeed. I think I see him. Why, he isn't quite so big as old Slaney the butcher. It's a do. I'll have Adam when he comes back. Meanwhile, the unconscious object of this soliloquy passed down High Street until he came to Dr. Chillingworth's, at whose door he knocked. Now, Mrs. Chillingworth had been waiting the whole night for the return of the doctor, who had not yet made his appearance, and, consequently, that lady's temper had become acidulated to an uncommon extent, and when she heard a knock at the door, something possessed her that it could be no other than her spouse, and she prepared to give him that warm reception which she considered he had a right, as a married man, to expect after such conduct. She hurriedly filled a tolerably sized hand basin with not the cleanest water in the world, and then, opening the door hurriedly with one hand, she sloused the contents into the face of the intruder, exclaiming, "'Now you've caught it!' "'Damn!' said the Hungarian nobleman, and then Mrs. Chillingworth uttered a scream, for she feared she had made a mistake. 
Oh, sir, I'm very sorry, but I thought it was my husband. But if you did, said the stranger, there was no occasion to drown him with a basin of soap suds. It is your husband I want, madam, if he be Dr. Chillingworth. Then, indeed, you must go on wanting him, sir, for he's not been to his home for a day and a night. He takes up all his time in hunting after that beastly vampire. Ah, Sir Francis Varney, you mean? I do, and I'd Varney him if I caught hold of him. Can you give me the least idea of where he can be found? Of course I can. Indeed, where? said the stranger, eagerly. In some churchyard, to be sure, gobbling up the dead bodies. With this, Mrs. Chillingworth shut the door with a bang that nearly flattened the Hungarian's nose with his face, and he was fain to walk away, quite convinced that there was no information to be had in that quarter. He returned to the inn, and having told the landlord that he would give a handsome reward to anyone who would discover to him the retreat of Sir Francis Varney, he shut himself up in an apartment alone and was busy for a time in writing letters. Although the sum which the stranger offered was an indefinite one, the landlord mentioned the matter across the bar to several persons, but all of them shook their heads, believing it to be a very perilous adventure indeed to have anything to do with so troublesome a subject as Sir Francis Varney. As the day advanced, however, a young lad presented himself and asked to see the gentleman who had been inquiring for Varney. The landlord severely questioned and cross-questioned him with the hope of discovering if he had any information, but the boy was quite obdurate and would speak to no one but the person who had offered the reward, so that mine host was compelled to take him to the Hungarian nobleman, who, as yet, had neither eaten nor drunk in the house. The boy wore upon his countenance the very expression of juvenile cunning, and when the stranger asked him if he really was in possession of any information concerning the retreat of Sir Francis Varney, he said, "'I can tell you where it is, but what are you going to give?' "'What sum do you require?' said the stranger. "'A whole half-crown.' "'It is yours, and if your information prove correct, come tomorrow, and I'll add another to it, always provided, likewise, you keep the secret from anyone else. "'Trust me for that,' said the boy. "'I live with my grandmother. She's precious old and has got a cottage. We sell milk and cakes, sticky stuff, and pennywinkles.' "'A goodly collection. Go on.' "'Well, sir, this morning there comes a man in with a bottle, and he buys a bottle full of milk and a loaf. I saw him, and I knew it was Varney the Vampire. You followed him? Of course I did, sir, and he's staying at the house that's to let down the lane, round the corner, by Mr. Biggs, and past Lee's garden, leaving old Slaney's stacks on your right hand, and so cutting on till you come to Grant's Meadow, when you'll see old Mad Hunter's Brickfield staring of you in the face, and after that... Peace, peace. You shall yourself conduct me. Come to this place at sunset. Be secret, 
and probably ten times the reward you have already received may be yours, said the stranger. What? Ten half-crowns? Yes, I will keep my word with you. What a go! I know what I'll do. I'll set up as a showman, and what a glorious treat it will be to peep through one of the holes all day myself and get somebody to pull the strings up and down, and when I'm tired of that, I can blaze away upon the trumpet like one o'clock. I think I see me. Here you sees the Duke of Marlborough a whopping of everybody, and here you see the Frenchman flying about like parched peas in a sifter. End of chapter 83 Recording by Roger Moline